Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where in the world you are and what time of the day you're listening to this podcast. Today it's an esque podcast, not talking the blues, but I do have one of the two Costigan brothers with me, and I'm delighted to um, tell everybody that uh, George is joining me for a chat. We don't really have an agenda. Come on. We're going to talk about football, no doubt. No. And we may talk about a few other things as well. But uh, George, welcome, and thank you for spending the time um, chatting with me. Well, um, I'm in isolation. <laughs> <laughs> so time is something I've got tons of, because um, I'm in Belfast waiting to do two days' work on Line of Duty, the teleseries, and uh, I have to quarantine. And as my wife pointed out, um, this morning at home, when I get back to France, I'll have to quarantine as well. That should be interesting. Uh, of course, yeah. So how, how long are you going to be in Belfast? I've got two days work, in theory, two days work on Thursday and Friday. And then uh, Friday night, I fly home from Dublin. But yesterday, I read that the Irish Health Authority um, has recommended to the Irish government that they go to level five, which is basically total lockdown. Yeah. Um, because, as I'm sure you know, Paul, the, the COVID figures today the british ones are scary biscuits it's gone to twenty-three thousand people yesterday that's a jump from four thousand the day before yeah wasn't france is at twelve thousand um so anything could happen you know they could just go no no we're not flying down to lose no 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 that's not happening and i'll be stuck here i don't know we'll see well fingers crossed are you going to give the podcast an exclusive and tell us who h is Certainly not. Um, <laughs> I've signed a handy confidentiality like, agreement. <laughs> yeah, good, excellent stuff. Well, look, George, you uh, do you ever sign those things in business? Do I ever sign? Yeah, all the time. Hardly, hardly have a conversation that's not covered by oh, right. a, a non-disclosure agreement. Um, wow, it's also ultimately they, they're, they're quite difficult to enforce. Um, if you know if one is ever breached, uh, but it just gives you a little bit of confidence um, to talk to people about subjects which are uh, sensitive. So um, you know, over the over the years, it's become more prevalent. I think when I first started my business career, uh, less so, but much more so these days. So um, I think I think I think it's a good thing if it gives you if it gives you confidence and the ability to discuss things which um, are. Uh, commercially sensitive then you know it's good when did what did you do before you started your business career and when did it start (laughs) um i don't i don't i don't normally talk a lot about about this type of stuff um as as you as you know if Uh, you don't want to no no no, i mean it's fine i um i started working for myself over, over 30 years ago um, and what did you what did you do before that? And, and bef- before that, I worked in in the city of London. Oh right. So um, I, I worked for a big you know, American investment manager um, in, in in London. And bef- right. And bef- bef- before that, I uh, I used to sell uh, life assurance and pensions up in uh, up in Liverpool um, after after my degree. So. Uh, yeah. Well, what was your degree in? Because it wasn't to do with this, was it? No, no, it's just... Oh, it was? 
no, no, just bog, bog standard business degree. Uh, business uh, degree. I, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, when I when I left uh, school, um, I did think about right. doing. No, doing, me neither. <laughs> I did think about doing law, and and, and in uh, retrospect, I probably should have done, but um, I didn't, and uh, here I am today. So uh, yeah. So you 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 you're. you're uh, you and Andy are actually both most unusual. I, I spent a lot, a lot of time in Manchester in in, in the nineteen eighties, and I spent a, actually spent a lot of time in Salford, which is your um, the town that you were brought up in. If I'm if yeah. I'm uh, thinking correctly, and the idea of uh, both you and Andy being uh, mad Evertonians but <laughs> living living in Salford is uh, is quite quite an amusing one. Yeah, I mean. Uh, I- you know, it's just one of those things that happens, isn't it? Um, well, Alex Ferguson said once, there's two things you can't change. One is your walk, and the other one is your football team. Right. Um, it's, it, it's just an oddity because an actor changes his walk quite deliberately every single time he plays a character. Because every single time you think, well, this guy doesn't walk like me. And the walk is a really, really individual thing. And he's right in terms of people who, but, you know, an actor's job is to do the exact opposite and to go, well, why does this guy walk the way he does? There's a fabulous exercise that I've done a couple of times. It's really hard work. But because walks are all individual, you get a bunch of students usually and you set one of them off and everybody follows in a circle. And the idea is that you copy the walk in front of you. And the theory is, of course, that you should eventually end up with everybody walking exactly the same because they're copying the person in front of them. Yeah. And it doesn't work because it's so embedded in you. But it's just a fascinating exercise. And the point of this ramble is that I did change my football team because <laughs> um, I used to support Bolton Wanderers. Because, right. you know, I think this is probably something to do with why Andy's a blue because our elder was a Bolton Wanderers supporter. So, you know, it's good enough for David. It was good for me and my mother knew that, you know, we could follow the same bus route and it'd be fine and safe kind of thing. Um, and uh, so I was a Bolton supporter until they got relegated. And I, you know, I can vividly remember like it was yesterday, standing on the terraces, watching them get hammered in the mud um, and thinking, I'm not watching television football. I'm just not. I can't bear it. This is bad. But to actually go down a level, um, I'm not doing it. So at 15, 16 years of age, 15, I think, you kind of go, oh, now, if you, <laughs> if by the time you're 15 and grew up in Salford in Manchester, you are not a Manchester United supporter, you cannot become one because by then you hate them. You hate them because everything about them. It's still the same. It's what I was saying on the cast on Sunday, you know, I listened to something last night on, on my day, and they, they're talking about, it doesn't matter, sorry, it's just a mad ranting anti-United stuff, but you cannot become a United fan because you do hate the fact that everything is about them. The big report in the paper, la, 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 la. Everton had become champions the year before. So um, I thought, well, it's not far. It's only just down the East Road. We lived just off the East Lanks Road. I'm going to go and watch the Champions of That sounds like a good idea. And I know that you, um, you don't 
you know, you, you prefer for your podcast not to contain any bad language. This will contain one bad language word because just because of the rhythm of it, Paul. Sorry. Do you want to hear the rest of the story? <laughs> yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Okay. So, so one August afternoon, I stick my thumb out and somebody, a lorry driver, and lift right to the bottom of Gladys Street. Glorious sunny day. And uh, he goes, there you are, down there. And you'll be with the Everton end if you get a ticket to go in that bit. That was great. So I walk down the road and the first thing I see is a little kid. And he must be about six or seven. And he runs out of the house, the terraced house. And he's only wearing a vest. So his little winky is sticking out below his, his vest, which is a sight, you know. Um, and he looks up and down the road and he sees his mum goes, Mum, Mum. Where's me fucking shirt? <laughs> and I just, I, my jaw just dropped open. You know, I had no, I never ever thought about it. I only think about it how cosseted I was by the way my parents brought us up. But that was like, what did that kid say? Anyway, I get a ticket. I go into the ground and, um, and I'm, you know, I've never been there before. It's a great sight. Obviously the pitch perfect and the, the ground's lovely. And uh, there's this guy walking around shouting, spear, spear, spear. I go, what? And I turn to somebody, I go, what's he saying? <laughs> this kid goes, spear, spiggy. And I go, oh, right, what's spiggy? And he looks at me like, where's this sheep come from? Um, chewing gum, he goes. And I remember standing there thinking, my God, I come 25 miles down the road and they speak a different language here. <laughs> and then the match started and we won 4-1. I think Royston Vin got a hat trick or something. And I just got, I completely fell in love with not only the team and the crew and Alec Young was playing and all that stuff. And they were clearly really good. But the city as well and the people. And that love affair has never ended. Two of our children were born in Liverpool. All the be- I met Jules in Liverpool all the best times really have been in Liverpool less theatre times you know I was that amazing everyman company for a long time and so you know it's that love affair that makes me an Evertonian and I think Anne's story is probably different but it's probably something to do with the fact that his elder brother went down the road to Goodison. <laughs> That's a really interesting story <laughs> I just got this image I had no I had no idea what Spiggy was neither so um I'm not sure how oh, many. Right. People, I'm not sure how many people today would actually know. There, there, there was um, before we talk more about Everton. Oh, the toffee a, lady there, of course, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I always, I never ever caught a toffee in all the all the years that I went to the game. Me I neither. Never, <laughs> I never, ever caught it. <laughs> there was an interesting tweet. Well, interesting to me the other day. An interesting tweet that showed a. Um, you know the you know the back alleys between rows of terraced houses, uh, and it asked, yeah. "What did you call? What did you call the back alley um, when you know when you were a kid, or even even now if if you if you live in a house with one?" Um, and I answered, uh, "It's a back jigger." Oh wow! J i g g. See in Salford, that's a ginnel. It's a ginnel, yeah, yeah, and and I know the expression ginnel. Maybe jigger's not that far from it, but uh, I always knew it as a jigger. Um, and right. I, hardly anybody else 
uh, on on the tweet or on the uh, that answered the tweet uh, said the same thing. It's interesting. Oh, I, think wow. it, I think it's I think it's quite an old Liverpool word, um, but I, I I probably would have got that word from my granddad. Uh, right, because the old the sort of the old Liverpool words that I know all came from him and came from his um, sort of uh, life on the docks. Yeah, life on the docks. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> he had the, the guy uh, who played for Everton. No, no, it was his father that play, played played for Everton. So uh, right. he, I think he would have loved to have played for Everton, but I don't think he was good enough. Um, he was a decent cricketer, but he wasn't. Uh, he, I don't, I don't think football was re- really his game, other than the fact that he he, he loved going. And um, as I've told a number of people, you know, he he didn't miss a game from 1927 till 1975 when he died, the weekend that he died. Um, and he stood in the same, he stood, I suppose a lot of people did this. He stood in exactly the same spot for every single game. Yep. Um, on the, on the, the what was the, 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 or what still is the lower Gladys Street, but when it was a terrace, um, just to the right of the edge of the 18 yard line on, on the Bullens Road side. Um, right. About three barriers, it was three barriers up. Um, Good spec. And even today, when, well, I mean, obviously not the moment because nobody, nobody can go. But when, when I go to Goodison and I haven't sat, in fact, I've never sat in the Lower, lower Gladys Street. Uh, when, when it was a terrace, I used to go and stand in the same place as, as my granddad. But wherever I've sat in the ground, I always look over into that little spot where, where he would have stood. Yeah. Um, and sort of there's a, there's, a, there's a connection there, you know? Of course there is. Do you... Do you believe in in any kind of spiritual thing that your your that granddad is looking down now and going ah cracking well done Carlo? <laughs> I, or is I, that I, just wishy washy nonsense? No, I, I, there's no logical explanation for it, is there? Because it's not a logical thing. But I I, I do I do no. believe I, I do believe that there is a, uh, a spiritual world beyond. Uh, there's something beyond our, our sort of you know our existence on, on this planet. It, it, it seems inconceivable to me that you can live a life, seventy, eighty, whatever, however many years, uh, do various things, impact other people's lives, uh, bring people into in, into you know uh, have children, bring 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 people to the planet, <laughs> but to Earth ourselves yet there not be anything beyond the point where you actually stop breathing or your heart your heart stops uh, stops beating it's inconceivable to me that there's nothing beyond that i have the same feeling when because um i live in a tiny 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 remote hamlet with no street lighting of any kind on a clear night you look at the cosmos and you go oh, we're here all alone no way yeah no way can't be yeah. No, I, I, absolutely. I mean, I'm fortunate where I live that uh, there's no there's no light pollution whatsoever. Um, so yeah. when when it's a clear evening, uh, it's just, sky goes white, doesn't it? Yeah, it's just spectacular just to sit there and just uh, just just contemplate, um, you know, yeah. what, what's what what's what's around us. And um, yeah, it's 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 inconceivable that we are a that we just exist for that short period of time that we didn't exist beforehand and we didn't we don't exist 
um, <laughs> exists beyond it. So, you know, and occasionally, uh, my, my so when I was when when I was a when I was a a, a, a young boy, um, the house that we lived in was a two up terrace, two up two down terraced house that uh, my other grandfather had lived in, and he he died, um, but obviously my dad took took on took on the house, and just every so often, occasionally, um, my granddad, the the, the, the non footballing one, uh, he used to smoke. He, he smoked a pipe regularly with a particular type right. of tobacco. I don't know what the tobacco was, but even many years after he died, every so often in that same house, you smell it. You get a little whiff of of his tobacco. And there was myself and my brother and my mum and my dad. And we'd all, so the things would stop for a few seconds and he'd say, and his name was Joe. You'd all say, smell it. Yeah. And they'd say, and we'd all, all, all say, well, Joe's back again, because that was his name, Joe. Um, and it was like he'd come to visit us now. You know, there's no, <laughs> people listening to this will think this is absolutely bonkers. But that was, that was what we believed. I suspect you see that people won't get bonkers. They'll, they'll, they'll go. Yep, nice to hear somebody say that because that has happened to me in some tiny way. You know, yeah. it's like it, it. I don't think it's any different from that. You walk, you walk into the bedroom and you go, why, why am I here? What have I come in here for? I've forgotten. And if you go back, but trace your steps back to the kitchen, where you had the idea. There's the idea waiting. You left it. You go, oh, yeah, that's right. what I want. That, I think, is the same thing. I had a friend, uh, well, I haven't, and she said that um, ideas are just in the air and you walk past them and you pick them up or you don't. That's Whatever they are. Yeah. You know, however cosmic or trivial they may be. So, um, so when we and think it was interesting, stuff. you know, I'm reading an interview with Bob Dylan, who I am hugely, hugely fond of, and he said, "No, I," he said, "You know, everybody said I was a prof all this nonsense." He said, "I could tell what was in the air at certain times, and I caught, it. and I reported it, blowing in the wind. The times they are changing. When you listen to times they are changing now, it's obvious. It's not rocket science. It's obvious." Um, but I can tell you, the first time I heard that song, I had never been spoken to like that. Never. Nobody had ever said, come mother and fathers, get out of the way if you don't understand what's going on. And that is so true. And it's constant in, in human existence, I guess. But, you know, that thing that he just caught the, he caught the zeitgeist at that moment is... Um, it's a perennial thing with humans, I think. I don't know what you do with it, you know. So, so what you could say, but it's interesting, and you, you know, it's like you know, him. This is really, um, it's like Hamlet said, uh, "There are more things in heaven and earth than a dread of in your philosophy, Horatio." Mm. And there's such a lot of truth in that. No, I, 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 to, I totally oh, support. She's getting esoteric. She'll go back to Alec Young. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I, 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 to, I totally support that that view. Um, one one hundred percent. You know, and I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, 
<laughs> Let's go back to the football. I might come back to that in a few minutes. <laughs> so you, you you fell in love with Everton and you fell in love with, with, with the city of Liverpool. Uh, I fell in love with the fans and I fell in love with the crack. Never heard a sense of humour like that in my life in Liverpool. I felt at home in Liverpool very, very much. And, and I wasn't surprised that it came our home. And that we lived there for a long time. And if, you know, if, if the world went crazy and it went, you have to go back to somewhere you've been and live the rest of your life there. I don't think Jules and I would hesitate. We'd definitely go, oh, let's go back to Liverpool. Gosh, it's that's a, wonderful you know, to hear. It's a magnet. It's a fantastic place. Mm. Well, you know better than I do. Uh, yeah, I do. Although, I have to be honest, I don't think I could ever say hand on heart that I would want to. Uh, to live to live in Liverpool, and <laughs> that's probably not a wise thing to say on a podcast that's listened to most many, many people from Liverpool. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I I fell out. I didn't didn't fall out of love with Liverpool. Um, it just, even though I was brought up there, uh, I never really felt it was my home. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time there, and I. You know, lived uh, nearly well. I did live twenty-five years in, in in Liverpool. You know, from being born. Um, but to me, it never felt like my home. And have you found a place that does fit your home? Um, for, no, I don't think I have actually. I don't. I, I don't. I don't think. And I isn't have. it? Isn't it more likely that it's wherever your family is? Actually. Uh, yeah, I mean, clearly when you have a family of your own, wherever they, they may be, that is, that, be, that becomes, becomes your home. Yeah. Excuse me. But, you know, in terms of, well, certainly in terms of cities, and I've lived in, you know, several cities, I've never ever felt as a city as being um, a place that I could really call home. I felt it about places that are sort of more, more closer to nature. So, so you know, a place by the sea or a place um, in the countryside, I can ident identify more with that as home. Um, right. but, but a built-up urban environment? No, not really. I understand that. But my, my love affair with Liverpool is, is, is the love affair of a, you know, what you think about Liverpool, I would definitely underline about Salford. Wild horses wouldn't get me to go back to live in Salford. Because it's where you grew up, you know, you kind of know it. You know, it's obviously like everywhere else, changing and changing rapidly. But Liverpool was somewhere I went to. Yeah. And, uh, and I did say, you know, if somebody said you had to go back to somewhere, that, that's where I'd go. Just people, man. Just for the humour, just for the, you know, I remember being there one day and thinking, Mike, what a place this is. This is the funniest city in Britain. This is the angriest city in Britain. This is the most musical city in Britain. This is the most politically aware city in Liverpool, in in England, in Britain. It's a, you know, and since then I have covered Glasgow, which is not that different, and I'm very fond of Newcastle as well. But it, that, that, you know, that that thing that Liverpool people have, and sometimes they can be a royal in the arse, you know. You meet them abroad. I remember doing great picking with a bunch of houses, and you went, oh, for goodness, stop whining and moaning about Everything. <laughs> um, and in the end, you know, after a month with them, they were, they, they stopped comparing everything with Liverpool, which is what they, Liverpool has a kind of bunker mentality within it. 
which when you're there, you know why. You, you, you know why it's everybody else has a woolly back. When you meet it from time to time, lighting almost any large group of British people abroad, it's a bit of a nightmare sometimes. <laughs> you know, I was, I was going to say, one, perhaps one of the reasons um, why I don't really consider Liverpool as a place that I would call home is the reasons why, um, why I left. And I, and I left. Yeah. I left a city that had become uh, destroyed by Margaret Thatcher. Well, uh, you Liverpool won. Do I think Liverpool won? No, I said, have you seen Liverpool? Oh, sorry. Uh, yes, I have. Yeah, yeah. The last time I was there. Yes, I have seen it, and. Oh, it's got to Thatcher. <laughs> There's always rich territory. No, I just I rec I, I recall um, my my dad worked for uh, I won't say which company, but he worked for a large manufacturing company in in Speak, and he worked there all of his life. Well, say all of his life, he worked there from the age of sort of sixteen up to the day that he got made redundant, uh, and he would have been. Right. How, how old would he, he would have been 40, 46 when he got made redundant. Um, and wow. like, like, like most people, uh, I just finished, I, I just finished doing my um, O levels. So I, I was at home. Um, I wasn't at school because I just finished doing my levels. And like most people at that time, your parents went out to work. They left you to your own devices for the whole day. Okay. I was 16. So I, you know, I was well capable of looking after myself. Um, and he didn't see your parents until they came home from, from work, whatever time that might be, three o'clock in the afternoon if they were on uh, early, more, early shifts or, or, or later, you know, whatever. Anyway, this, this particular Friday morning, um, I don't even know what I was doing. I was doing something, possibly having breakfast or something. So it was about nine o'clock in the morning. And the key went in the door. And my dad walked in. And he walked in and he sat on the sofa. And I'd never seen my dad cry before. And he just broke down in tears. And he said, um, I've been made redundant. And there was only, there was only me in, in, in the house. And he said, um, I'll never work again. And he was 46. And this was uh, right at the end of the 1970s, just the beginning of the 80s when, when um, Thatcher was doing her worst. And he was right. He never actually got... Uh, unemployed or he, he never was, was never employed again um for the re for the rest of his life that was that was his last working day and the, the, the for me the brutality of ha having worked for a company for 30 years and then to be told when you walk through the when you you know walk through the factory gates not to go to his normal place of work but to go to uh, the canteen and when he got to the canteen there were uh, just lines of people, and you were told to stand under your, under the initial. There was big letters. He said quite across, uh, you know, written across a board, and you were told you were told to stand uh, in the line. You know, so if your name was Brown, you stood under B. If your name was Jones, you, you stood under J. And you got in the queue, and you shuffled forward to the front of the queue. They asked you your name, your work number, and you were handed an envelope and that was it. 
and then you were told to leave the premises. And then, was that his P forty five or it was P forty five, and it was some you know some redundancy money. Um, and of course, you know that's that that experience obviously it happened to many many people. Um, but that for that to happen to my dad was a very very profound thing for me. Um, of course, because he was you know, well, he was he was he was no different from any 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 other worker. I think uh, you know he did his job. Whether he, I don't think he particularly loved his job, but he did it every day because it was what um, brought the money in to provide the things that a family needs. Um, uh-huh. But he knew he knew because of the state of the city, the state of the economy, that uh, just as a, a an ordinary manual worker with no qualification, no qualifications, no real transferable skills, that he would never work again. And as I say, he didn't. What did that do to his dignity, Paul? I think for, I think for a long time, uh, it did a huge amount. He, uh, he was embarrassed by not being able to, first of all, not being able to provide for the family, and he was embarrassed. Yep. He was embarrassed by uh, having to receive benefits from from the government, which he viewed, even though he'd paid his taxes all all, all of his life. Up to, or up to that point, anyway, he, he he viewed as a form of charity, right? Um, and he and he hated that. And it's 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 interesting, and I suppose a lot of people do this. He his own view of his own life was so tied up with the work that he did, yeah, and and the inability to work, the inability to provide, um, you know took away an awful an awful lot of, of, of well yeah of, of his self-worth i would think absolutely and how did it affect his relationship with your mum because um, presumably she became the breadwinner kind of well my mum was a nurse so she was never going to never going to be made redundant so um yeah it's yeah. abused uh, <laughs> Yeah, whether it, I don't know, I don't know if it did. Well, logically, it must have affected their relationship, but I can't say with any certainty that I, I was, I was aware of how, of how. Well, it that's a marvelous thing to be able to say. Um, yeah, but they then they they had a, <laughs> um, they had a very, uh, very remarkable marriage. Yeah, so. you've talked about it before, and, and and it sounds like it because you know the the instances of that kind of thing leading to alcohol, violence, anger, displaced anger, misplaced anger are you know common. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I totally, totally understand why somebody would go down that route. Um, and I suppose it's a, it's a huge credit to my dad that he never did. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's but, brilliant. <laughs> he never liked football. <laughs> Funnily enough. <laughs> uh, so he and I, he and I actually had had virtually no no common interests. In fact, we didn't have any common interests. All the things that I liked, he didn't like, and all of the things that um, he liked, I I had no interest as well. So he had a like big interest in in music, for example. Um, and I have no interest, as, as you know, at all in, in, in music. Uh, he had no interest in sport, and I, 
as a kid, I was like sports mad. Um, right. You know, I, I either studied or I played sports. That's and that's all I ever did as a kid. Um, you know, sort of during the summer holidays, you know, endless days of just playing cricket on uh, the the local sports field. And if it wasn't cricket, we you know we used to play golf until we got chased off by the uh, um, by the parkies. By the parkies, yeah, exactly. So, but he he had none he had none none of that interest at all. So, one of the one of the biggest regrets is that I never ever went to a football match with him, and he never ever came and watched me play football. That's bad. I understand him not coming to watch a match, but he should have got right. Well, yeah, he should have gone to watch his kid from yeah, he, So, he, what yeah. were his interests? What that you didn't connect with apart from music? Uh, music, dancing, um, and cars. He, he was oh, well. a fanatic on cars. So, yeah, he had a little lock-up garage just around the corner from where we lived. And right. He spent all of his free time there. It was a, a piece of wasteland. Um, I think it was an old, a, you know, an old bomb site, and somebody had built some uh, series of lock-up garages there and there were a group of guys my dad included who used to just meet up there every you know <laughs> all the free time that they had so every every weekend uh, when he was working and after he worked after he stopped working uh, that's where he used to go and there was just a bunch of guys who used to mess about with cars in the days when you could you know fix cars yourself before they became um, mini computers that you can't you can't touch um, yeah. so, so yeah, that, they, they were his interests, um, but f- football def- definitely wasn't one of them. I mean, he wouldn't. He... The only time I ever saw him watch football is he used to watch the um, FA Cup final. Yeah, that was a weird ritual, wasn't it? The only yeah. time I watched it, and he had no idea what he was watching. But it became like last night of the proms or something. Something you had to watch. Yeah, it was, it was just a it was a, ri- a ritual experience. Um, and I, 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 can re- I can recall watching various cup finals with him, um, but that was the only time that uh, he ever did anything anything related to sport. Which what was the first one you watched? The first cup final I can remember is uh, yeah. Liverpool-Arsenal, uh, the Charlie George final. That oh, my God. 1971. Yeah. Um, I, I, I recall, um, I recall the previous year's final because that went to a replay. But I, I, I can only remember the fact that it went to a replay. That was the uh, Leeds Chelsea game, wasn't it? That ended up. Oh yeah, that was great because Chelsea uh, won the replay at Old Trafford. At, at, at Old Trafford, and hated Leeds. <laughs> <laughs> so I, 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 I don't recall the game, but I, re, I, I recall there being a replay of that. But the first game that I can recall is uh, yeah Arsenal-Liverpool. And of course, the big question in those days was, did you watch it on BBC or did you watch it on ITV? That's right, yeah. Was your, go on, what did you watch it on? I watched it on BBC for two reasons. One, I didn't like adverts and I still don't like adverts today. And secondly, and I know you, <laughs> you laughed at this, <laughs> I used to love listening to David Coleman. <laughs> We've had that conversation. Yeah. Even though um, I thought Brian, 
I used to, I used to love listening to Brian Moore as well, but um, if it was Coleman, commentator, if it was Coleman versus Moore, Coleman won won in my mind at least. Um, it's, fun, it's funny, isn't it? How I can I can can sort of I can roll them off all of the all of the certainly in the seventies, um, all of the cup finals that I used to watch as a kid. Because every every year something seems to happen. I can't recall there being a a really bad cup final. BBC. Um, we used to watch BBC because my my father, um, I think he thought ITV was the work of the devil, probably for the same reason that you did, because of uh, adverts which smacked to him of America. And having met Americans during the war, he was very very anti-American. But um, I think he associated the BBC with the Queen. <laughs> and so there was a kind of stand to attention but my god i hadn't realized how much older than you i am my first cup final i can remember was the 1955 cup final when um jackie milburn scored in 55 seconds against city right and they won 3-0 and then the following year bert troutman broke his neck while city beat birmingham 3-1 yeah but yeah ritual it was a, it was part of being english i think there were certain things that you all had, you know, you had to do. And watching the cup final seemed to be that. And my father had absolutely zero interest in football. <laughs> but the whole thing was an event, wasn't it? Because yeah. they set the, the television schedule to sort of start. I mean, at some times it was ridiculous. It started at nine o'clock in the morning. But the, That's right. no, the actual was... Wembley bit sort of started a couple of hours before kickoff with the sort of community. all that. Yeah, with the communal singing. I absolutely love that. Oh, what? Did, did you ever go to... Did, were you there at the 66 Cup final when we beat Chef White? No, you couldn't have been. If you didn't no, see I, I, I was only three years old then. Um, singing Abide With Me with a bunch of people is a very emotional moment. Fabulous, yeah. fabulous lyrics. <laughs> they are. They're what, you know. <laughs> they are. I'm laughing because I'm thinking about... this. I've got one, like, one of my favourite YouTube videos is uh, Bruce Forsyth leading um the communal singing oh because you know the way he sort of hammed everything up i mean he absolutely, yes. he absolutely, <laughs> he absolutely loved it because there he was center of attention in front of a hundred thousand people and countless millions watching on, on tv so he, he <laughs> just it's just 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 very very funny um uh jerry marsden as well yeah one year tommy Steele, i saw do it I can't remember who did it the, the year I, I went to the cup final. I went with Andy as well when we beat Watford. Yeah, in 84, uh, yeah. 84, and I, I can't, I don't remember. Anyway. So you went, you went to the 66 cup final. Oh, Paul. What a, I went to every single match of that cup run and I knew Everton were going to become the first team in the world, in the world, you know, when you're <laughs> that age. It is just the world, mate. Um, to win the cup by never conceding a goal. And I, Bunked off work and lied and cheated and stolen money from my parents to get to every single one of those replays and things. And, you know, it was a sumptuous football team, that football team. Um, and uh, and then I got, you know, I, I couldn't get a ticket because I didn't live in Liverpool. I wasn't a season ticket. Loud and loud and loud. And a girlfriend, you know, bankrupted herself and got me a ticket for 15 quid from a bookies in West Ham. I still owe her that 15 quid. <laughs> and, um, and uh, I was in the posh seats. I'm sure I've told you this story before. First minute, 
uh, Alex Scott, the Everton right winger, was clouted by Don Megson, the, the fullback, just giving him a sickener, you know, just announcing himself for the match. And I jumped to my feet and gave him both barrels of very um, industrial language. And all these knobby people around me looked at me like, oh my God, is that going to go on all afternoon? <laughs> and they all got another load as I went, yes, it if I paid 15 quid, I'm going to have exercise my right to express myself as I wish. And then um, all my dreams fell apart as Wednesday scored. And then they went into a two-goal lead. And my favourite player in that team, Fred Pickering, had been dropped correctly, of course, by Harry Catterick because Mike Trebilco turned the whole thing round. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I've only ever seen, obviously only ever seen, seen the films of it. Um... That guy running on the pitch, that beery guy running on the pitch, and the and the coppers flattening him, and Brian the Bone going over to the coppers, going, "Be gentle with him, he's a mate of mine." <laughs> What's his name? Uh, Eddie Kavanagh. That was him, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When when he sort of takes his throws his jacket off, as the yeah. coppers running after him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is uh, those type of things. Though, that's what made that's what made the FA Cup so special. Yeah. Yeah. Because it wasn't it was an event, and I think you know, one of the worst pieces of business that the FA have ever done is is moving uh, semi-finals to Wembley. Yes, a vile idea, absolutely vile idea. Pres- presumably, I and mean, you will know better than me, led by money. Well, it, it, it was it was in the contract that the FA signed when they, when they built Wembley. So. Honest to God, you get so angry about things. One of the best things about Wembley closing was that Sven Goran Eriksson team going round the country playing internationals at Goodison and uh, St James's Park and things and Villa Park. And the fans really close to the players and the players really reacting to it. And then they build this vile monstrosity that runs out of control, costs five times what it should have done. I'm exaggerating, of course. Um, in order that you know, you get silly things like that. And, and, the, um, and the semi-final was always great because, you know, you'd go to a ground that, you know, you go to Villa Park, you go to Sheffield, whatever it was. And, 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 it, and it, made, it made the getting to Wembley a much, much bigger thing. They've cheapened it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the semi-finals were always... Thrilling. Always, always great games and great, great, great occasions. Yeah. And very scary. Yeah. Um, you know, if I, th- if, if I think of the various semi semifinals that I attended, uh, most of Villa Park, um, Highbury, of course, um, for the, for the uh, Southampton game. Uh, just just fantastic days out with um, with your mates. Yeah. Uh, and we, it's funny actually. My football, my, my football mates. We never, we never actually. We, we never actually went drinking before again because um, we always wanted to be in like tip top condition yeah. to watch it you know and <laughs> yeah. I, I know I know other people who get so blind drunk before a game that they can't po- how can they possibly remember <laughs> anything that goes on on the pitch um I can't answer that Paul I have no idea um, but the last time I was in Glasgow there was an old firm match yeah and one of the guys in the company got to know some Rangers fans and this is gospel truth I, I wouldn't dare make this up and he said to him the, the, the kickoff 
as per Glasgow Police's instructions, was at 12. And Adam said to this guy, um, what are you going to do before the match tomorrow? He said, uh, start uh, with a big line of coke about uh, nine o'clock or something and then go down to my mates and have six or seven cans and then we'll do a load more coke and then about uh, half eleven we'll go on to the match. Crack. <laughs> I was just another world. I, I another world. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't believe that that's atypical in that city because that's that cult. That's the culture of that city. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. I mean, I, I, I think. Go on. No, I was just going to say. I think my my, my behaviour and the behaviour of my friends in in not certainly wouldn't have done the coke, but in, you know. In not in not getting blind drunk before a game a game of football that is that is atypical. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, for some reason, and I, I can't recall why, but for the 80, 84 cup final, yeah, um, I tra- I travelled down by myself, and I didn't have any plans to meet the people that I normally went to the match with. Uh, at Wembley for some bizarre reason. But the really odd thing is, is that when I walked, <laughs> when I walked into Wembley by myself and, and I was, I was right at the back of, of, of the old terrace behind uh, which, which side uh, on the right hand side. So, so not, not the tunnel side on, 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 right. on the, on the other side. Um, the people that I normally went to the match with were the first people I bumped into. <laughs> <laughs> and you're thinking there's a hundred thousand people here, and I have to bump into you. <laughs> did did you ever go to the game? Well, you, you must have done because you just explained your your um your your first game, going to the game by yourself. Not my favourite thing, I must say. I don't. I'm. Uh, you know. I like Andy was saying yesterday about what we're missing because of COVID. It's it's a it's a shared thing. Football. You're going to share it with 39,000 strangers, but it's always nice to go with somebody who's got the same history and the same passions. And, you know, like if, if, you, if us three went to the match together now, we'd be talking about Iwobi as we approach the game, as the match starts, when he comes on, because that's part of it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's not rocket science, what I'm saying, but I, I'm, I was never a big fan of going to the match on my own, but I did, you know. You always find someone to talk to, don't you? But you need, you need, you need to talk. You need to express what it is you're feeling because your emotions run high watching your own know, football team. Yeah, I, I, I always loved going to the game with my mates, but I was also um, very happy to go to a game by myself and actually not speak to anybody. <laughs> just, just sit there and watch the game. Yeah. That, you know, in the, in the last couple of years when I've been working up in Scotland, I went to watch Forfar yeah. and I didn't expect to talk to anybody and I did not speak to anybody. But just sitting and watching and observing and thinking to yourself and occasionally texting Andy um, is, is a valid experience. But, you know, I'm a lot older now. When I went to football, I was a lot younger and probably a lot more needy of other people. I don't know. <laughs> the, the funniest thing about Forfar was, uh, apart from their nickname, the Loons, is that the referees and linesmen all through the Scottish League, they're all sponsored by Specsavers, Paul. 
Specsavers adverts on the back of linesmen and referees. It's such a macabre joke. It, funny. I um when I when I was very young, um was never allowed to go to uh, Everton's home games or you know, because I was just just, just too young. And if right. if there was a time when my granddad wasn't watching or rather I mean he watched every Everton game, so or home game. But if there was an occasion when um, for some reason Everton weren't playing at home, but Liverpool reserves were playing at Anfield and it happened on on a few occasions, uh, he would take me to those games or he would take me to Goodison to watch Everton reserves um, from time to time. But I I recall uh, I actually went and I saw Phil Phil Thompson's um, debut for Liverpool reserves with my granddad. And the reason why I'm saying that is whoever the referee was, and it, you know, it was a reserve game in the very early 1970s, could even be in late 60s. And so who, who, I don't know who it was. Anyway, he made some, um, some mistake, and I must have been about six or seven. And in a tiny little, <laughs> little squeaky voice, I shouted, hey, referee, you need to get some glasses. And I shouted that out. And I don't know why I shouted that out, but I did because it was not quite some typical behaviour of me. And I got such a telling off by my granddad. Oh, wow. He said, that, that referee is a person like you, like me, and he goes home, has to go home at night to his family. And he does this because he loves football. You oh. have no right at all um, as, a, as a young child to shout at him. Good heavens. <laughs> <laughs> and for years, I never shouted anything at a football match afterwards because of that. <laughs> wow! Yeah, I mean that changed, changed, changed obviously. But uh, I always, I always, always recall, like, you know, sort of pathetic little squeaky voice shouting at the referee and getting told off for it. <clears throat> My version of that story, it's, which is a, uh, is a uh, um, eldest son, Niall. Um, was was sounds very very much like um, how you describe yourself at that age and probably a bit older. He was just sport mad, whatever it was. He turned into a really good tennis player, really good tennis player. But he was a fascinating footballer to watch because um, oh, it's just you know football's so great. Uh, he you would go and you and I would go and watch him playing wing half, and you'd go well. I'm sure he's a nice lad, George. He can't play football. He can't tackle. He won't tackle. He's, he's got no range of passes. And uh, and he's a bit scared of heading the ball, isn't he? And, you, and I, I would have no choice but to go, no, you're absolutely right. Then you, then you, you know, finally he discovered, or he discovered, or somebody discovered, uh, playing centre forward. The transformation was amazing. Suddenly this guy is extraordinarily physical. A, a very low center of gravity is um, revealed. Got a proper nasty attitude and a proper, proper deadly eye for goals. When we moved to France and, you know, he couldn't speak French and well, none of us really could. And um, his calling card and our calling card in the village was he joined the under 11s, the village under 11 and scored 29 goals in the first before Christmas. Yeah. And I, I became a celebrity. Monsieur Costigan, le père de Boudreau. You know, it was, uh, 
but he, he was just, it was completely transformational. And, and, um, and also his cricket, he was fantastic. But sorry, the point of the story is, at 11 years, 11 years old, 10 years old, he's playing for a football team called Elton Progress um, down in South East London. And he also joins the local rugby team. And one day they asked me to run the line on this uh, Elton Progress thing. I will never, ever do that again. I've never been offered so many fights in my life by angry, angry men screaming at me because I'd given their kid offside. And it was like, whoa, scary. And I'm going, hang on, mate. I'm just, you know, trying to... They weren't bothered about that. And the atmosphere, Eltham is not the nicest place in the world, but the atmosphere of, of a working-class sport was aggressive. That's all I would have to say about that. Cut to go down the road and uh, Niall's playing scrum half for his, um, his under-11 rugby team. And, uh, and he's, he was really good at rugby. And he's super competitive, Niall. And uh, the, the way it works in, in mini rugby is that whoever is the visiting team, their coach refs the game. Right. And... Uh, and this guy was a complete, he, he was a cheat. You know, he gave everything to his team. And Niall stuck it for about, I don't know, two-thirds of the game. And then finally this guy gave another decision and Niall went potty. Nine-year-old boy throws the ball down and goes, oh, for God's sake. And every single adult except me on the touchline jumped on Niall. They all, a no, you do not do that. That is unacceptable. He is the referee. That's not happening. And, you know, that, that goes through into professional rugby and professional football today. Football players wear bands going, respect the referee, and then clearly don't. Mm. And rugby players, you know, do respect him, although you know there's a load of skullduggery going on underneath it all. But the difference in, in a sport run, there's no other way of putting this, by in a middle-class way and a sport run in a working-class way was chalk and cheese, absolute chalk and cheese. And in France, <laughs> I'm just remembered, this is a great story. We get to France and, um, you know, we are bothered about integrating our children and, and he's the eldest and he's got to go to school where he can't talk to anybody except the English teacher for the first six or seven weeks. And we go, and we go right, where's the local rugby team? Because, you know, Niall can play rugby and he, and it's, it's religion. We're in, we're in the south of France. And, and f you know, even when France won the World Cup, um, you could tell most of the public would rather it was, a, it was the Rugby World Cup they'd won. But anyway, and, and somebody says, oh, the guy, go and talk to the guy in the bank. He knows about mini rugby. So we go and find the guy in the, in the bank and we go, Where, where's the local rugby team? And this guy goes, are you seriously thinking about putting your 10-year-old, 11-year-old son into mini rugby in France when he can't speak French. And we went, yeah, he said, don't. The reason don't even why? He'd get murdered. Wow. Absolutely. You know, he's, the guy said he'll have no teeth left in a week. They'll just pick on him. And, 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 and it's because in, in France, rugby is the working class sport. And it's nasty. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm not making any great points here. I'm just burbling on a, stories about, you know. 
That's really interesting. Because um, I it's just different cultures, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But um, I think sport sometimes uh, changes people. I I'm quite mild mannered, um, sort of fairly relaxed, or obviously uh, ambitious and stuff, and work to, to achieve whatever it is that I want to achieve. But um, I'm very, very competitive and competitive, and I was always so competitive in sports. So uh, I went from being like a very quiet, shy kid uh, when I was not playing sports to being an absolute monster when I got got on the football <laughs> pitch or Hurrah. or playing cricket. I was like the most, and looking back on it, really quite obnoxious child when I was playing the sport because I just wanted to win so much. Um, <laughs> just, <laughs> I would endlessly be rabbiting on at the referee in football. Um, I always like to get. Yeah, to... How did you solve that problem? Or have you? Or have you? Or have you? Because you, you know, you've sometimes talked to me about how you behave in a business meeting, and and it is kind of like white line fever with you once you're over that line. Uh, yeah. There's only one objective here: win. <laughs> um. Well, I, I, I suppose transition from being a child to becoming an adult is that I realised there's, uh, diff there's different ways that you can compete and you don't have to compete by being an absolute, you know, monster uh, and actually being far more uh, subtle in terms of your tactics and your strategies and stuff um, is much more effective than sort of putting a big target on your, on, on, on your head that says, you know, I'm so competitive, I'm prepared to do anything. Uh, to win whatever it is that I'm going to win, there's actually, you know, stealth. Stealth is actually a far better strategy than, um, you know, getting out there and doing what I used to do on a football field. But it was bizarre. It was just, you know, I, I, I would do things on a football field that I wouldn't dream of doing elsewhere, ever. That's really interesting because, as parents, we went through hell with Niall, who was the world's worst loser. Yeah, um, I remember him throwing a cricket bat at me because I gave him out once. Um, <laughs> and he's about, and we we really we really really worried about him because you know he he wasn't bothered about what the norms of this rugby club was. If he lost his temper, he lost his temper. La 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 la. And eventually, it was some we, we said to, and we were watching some cricket match, and Niall was really good at cricket too, and um, and this guy had had been there when he'd thrown the cricket bat at me. And he said, Niall, you know when Botham was out the other day? Niall went, yeah. He said, what he wanted to do was what you did. He wanted to throw the cricket bat at the umpire. He really wanted to hit him. He really wanted to hurt him. But he thought, I'm not going to show you that. Yeah. That's, that's what you have to learn. And I think Niall picked that up and, and realised, of course, that that kind of display is a waste of energy. Although there are always exceptions to the rule, you know, um, one of my favourite tennis players, Billie Jean King, used to wind herself up by smashing rackets. She didn't give a damn what you thought. It was helping her. And McEnroe was the same, you know, who you could say in lots of ways was a cheat. Because, you know, the, the, the shoelaces didn't need tying. Djokovic is the best example, isn't it? You win three games against Djokovic, the trainer comes on while he make sure your rhythm is broken up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is, 
Is that cheating? Is that what? Is that cheating? Yeah. Oh, what? Go on, let, let's talk about Eric Lamella. What was that? Did you watch the, the United Spurs no, highlights? No, I didn't see it. He elbows Martial in the face. Martial literally flapped his hand in Lamella's face and Lamella collapses on the floor and Martial gets a red card, end of, end of football game. Right. It's cheating. I've got no, t- I, yeah, I mean, I've got no, I've got no time for that. No, no time for that at all. Um, well, I, I do not understand with all these cameras and VAR why there's no retrospective thing. There used to be. I remember N- Nisselroy and, and um, somebody from Arsenal getting in all sorts of trouble because they played the film back and he had gone over the ball and they gave him a three-match suspension. You know, I would like to see Lamella binned for the season, frankly, so that you send a message going, don't cheat, play the game. What's the matter with you? There's no mileage in it all. There's, you know, so you won, but you didn't really, did you? You know, most teams could probably beat most premiership teams if they've got 10 men. (laughs) Change the subject, I can feel an (laughs) anti-United rant coming. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. So tell me, uh, as we sort of get to winding up, um, Tell me how much you enjoy doing the podcast because um, I absolutely love doing uh, talking the talking the blues podcast. I can't believe I can't I can't believe my life every every week because I'm not on social media at all and every week you and Andy go we got this many people we got that many people and and so the the notion that something that you know Andy and I have done ever since you know ever since that after the match, we'd phone each other and talk about the match. And now, you know, gloriously, you're included in that conversation. We're all in, in a conversation and people enjoy it. I mean, it's just like, it almost feels unfair. I'm utterly, utterly thrilled with talking the blues and the fact that people get off on it. It's just wonderful because it's effortless. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Because it is... I mean, and I think we always intended it to be uh, just a natural conversation. So there's, yeah. very, there's very little planning that goes into it. Um, and there's very little structure behind it. But we sort of, and we could talk for much longer than an hour on, on <laughs> after, after every game. But um, it's brilliant that so many people um, li- enjoy listening to it. And um, actually, bizarrely, we value our opinion on football. I know that, that, you know, I don't, I don't like to think about that bit because, <laughs> you know, I'm an actor, so you have to keep your ego under some sort of control. Um, but the, you know, no, no, so no, I don't like to think about that at all. <laughs> okay. George, we've been speaking for over, well over an hour. So um, I've got one last, one, one last question because of yeah. how informed you are and the, the world you live in. Right. Give, Give me your two minutes on A, whether Michael Moore is right and there's nothing wrong with Trump whatsoever, and B, whether this will have a significant effect on what does feel to me like the most important election the planet's had since the Second World War, frankly. Is he lying? Is it a ruse? Is it a scam? Is it a trick? What do you think? What's your feeling? No, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't think it is a, a trick. Um, right. I don't either, as it happens. Yeah. <laughs> 
of, of all the incredible things that have happened under, under Trump's presidency to, to attempt to pull this off as some form of um, trick to get electoral, uh, gain some form of electoral advantage. Um, if a scriptwriter tried to write a, a play or a movie where the sitting president faints illness in a pandemic in order to gain electoral advantage, uh, I think it would get thrown out. Now, I can't for a second believe you, that. Come on. Wouldn't put it past him. I think he'll. You? I, I, well, no. Uh, on that basis, no, because th there's absolutely nothing that, that the guy is incapable of not doing. If that's a, not too many double negatives, there's nothing he won't do in order to try and keep power. Absolutely. Um, and I, um, sorry. So the final question, because I do, you know, you know, I respect your opinion. Is he going to? Is he going to work it one way or the other? No, I don't. I, I, do I don't think. I don't think he is. I don't think he is. I think there's enough people in America that maybe they don't understand it from a global perspective in terms of uh, the damage that he's doing to to, to that country. Um, right. But they they see it. They see it in their own lives, and they see it t certainly in terms of the. Re I think a, no a number of areas: the response to the, to the pandemic itself, yeah. how how appalling uh, the U.S. government's response response to it has been but right. i think more than that i think people sensible people are actually fearing you know a, a real breakdown of society and you one could argue that american society is already broken you know with guns and and st stuff of that nature but there is a real fear in certain areas and in, i think in enough areas in america that you know the the, the rate the race issues uh, that Trump has allowed uh, to happen, the, the rise of the far right uh, is so concerning to enough people that he's not going to be allowed uh, another four years. Good. I'm very, very, very relieved to hear you say that. And I hope with all my heart, I'll take three Everton losses in a row for that to be true. Yeah. I, and I suspect the other, but, but how much of this is because of COVID or not, I don't know. But the, economic miracle that he uh, boasted about and told everybody would happen has, un you know, even where it did happen, has unwound so quickly. Yeah. And, you know, America's economy is like, like all Western economies, all developed economies, in a complete mess. And it does, I don't think it matters who you are as a politician. Ultimately, if your economy fails, you don't get re-elected in a democracy. So hope that's true because... I yeah. Well, there's a dodgy word. <laughs> well, it's, it's, when probably less than 50% of the people who could vote will vote. Yeah. But at least those that do vote, ultimately, everybody votes in terms of their own self-interest. Very, yeah. very few people would do otherwise. And the state of the US economy is very poor. And I think that ultimately will be the deciding factor. I hope so, Paul. Yeah, I hope so. George, it's been fantastic uh, talking to you. I hope the people that listen to this have enjoyed it. We've uh, got to know a little bit more about you, a little bit more about me, which is uh, not a bad thing, I suppose. And um, <laughs> for you and I, it's been great fun. Yeah. Good crack. Cheers, yeah. mister. No, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs>